Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. reading in verse number 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. We started this series to bring some closure to our challenges and the excuses of our unfaithfulness, our faithlessness, since the church at Corinth is a good example for us to consider. And so we're basically just going to do a survey through Paul's letters to the Corinthians. So in the letters or the epistles of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, The Apostle Paul addresses several problems and issues that were present in the Corinthian church. And here are some of the key problems highlighted by Paul. First of all, there was uh, division and factionalism. There was schisms within the church. One of the major issues in the Corinthian church was a lack of unity and division among its members. The congregation was divided into various factions, each claiming allegiance to different leaders or apostles, such as Paul or Cephas, which was Peter. And this division caused strife, and it undermined the unity of the body of believers, not only in their local congregation, but their unity with believers elsewhere. And then there's immorality and sexual sin that was rampant, Not only through their culture, but also in the church. And so Paul confronted the Corinthians about the presence of sexual immorality among themselves. And he specifically addressed a case that was of an incestuous nature. But we also find hints throughout the rest of his letter that it wasn't just confined to that one instance. There was other aspects of sexual immorality within the church. And then there was litigation amongst believers. Taking each other to court. Suing one another. They were taking their disputes and their their conflicts to secular courts for resolution rather than submitting to the government of the church. And so Paul 
confronts that problem. He encouraged them to settle their disagreements within the church and under the guidance of spiritual leaders. And then there was a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church had misused, and that was the result of misunderstanding spiritual gifts. And of course, they wanted to highlight the sensational ones. That's why we like things that are sensational things that get our blood flowing, our adrenaline going. And then there was the improper celebration of the Lord's Supper. Instead of it being a unifying sacrament in Christ, it was a selfish event. It was a divisive event rather than a communal remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. Then there was the denial of the resurrection. Some members in the Corinthian church were doubting or denying the bodily resurrection of believers. Of course, this was causing theological and doctrinal challenges within the church. And then there was the problem of worldly wisdom and philosophical influences. They were being influenced by their culture, especially Greek philosophy which led to pride and arrogance and undermining biblical truths and the gospel message. And then there was also improper conduct in worship services. Disorder and confusion. Some members were disrupting the gatherings with inappropriate behavior and lack of respect for others. And so in both of his letters to the Corinthians, Paul addresses these issues and provides explanations, advice, and exhortations to correct and improve the situation. And so we are considering this from our vantage point because there are similarities with the Corinthian church in the first century and the American church in the 21st century. Now we've highlighted some of those similarities, but we've also shown that there are dissimilarities as well, right? And so we want to examine some of these things and help us have a proper understanding of where we are at today. And so Paul emphasizes several things throughout these letters. He emphasizes the importance of love, unity, spiritual maturity, and the proper use of spiritual gifts within the context of the body of Christ. And so our purpose is to call us to remembrance and faith, resulting in greater faithfulness despite our current challenges today. Every generation is challenging, and every generation faces challenges. We are no different than our brethren that have walked before us. They were confronted with challenges that they either had to meet head on or retreat in flight. And so what are we going to do today? Are we going to become overcomers? Because every generation of Christians are called to be overcomers. We must be overcomers in Christ overcoming Satan and sin in the world. So 
So we must overcome the obstacles before us just as the saints in every generation have been called to overcome the obstacles of our day. Now, some generations were unsuccessful. If you read history, there were high times and there were low times. So some generations were unsuccessful because they would not hear the warnings, they would not heed the call. And yet there were other generations who humbled themselves before the Lord and he gave them the grace needed to be overcomers for his grace is sufficient for any and all obstacles. Even the overcoming of death. He gives more grace, as we are told. He gives the grace that is needed. Therefore, we don't have to worry and we don't have to fret, even if the mountains were being removed and cast into the sea. No matter what obstacles we face, God's grace is sufficient. The first obstacle we face and the first obstacle by the way that was addressed by Paul now I want that to sink in for a minute think of all the problems and there are more problems than what I listed I just gave you a little summary of the problems in the Corinthian church pick one of them what do you think is a big one I'd say that incestuous thing was pretty big Right? Incest, that's a big problem, right? But Paul didn't start there. In addressing their problems, he did not start there. The first obstacle that Paul addresses, and it should be the first obstacle that we address, even though, as I mentioned in Sunday school, this is an obstacle that nobody will name. None dare call it division. None dare call it schism. None dare call it disunity. None dare call it hatred. None dare call it envy. None dare call it strife. But it's the very first thing that Paul addresses. It's the very first obstacle that we face today. It's not critical race theory. It's not gender fluidity. Those are big problems. Those are terrible abominations. But it's not the first obstacle we face. The New King James Version, or the New King James publishers, they titled this section that we read from as our text this morning as this. I don't know what version you have, but your publishers will always uh, insert headings. It's kind of like chapters and verses to help you find things quickly, right? And so they have inserted this heading and this is what it says right above verse 10 in all capital bold letters. Sectarianism is sin. 
How many of us believe that sectarianism is sin? That all the various denominations that we have in Protestantism is sin? How many of us believe that? But it is. Now, some of it is sin that we can't control. Those who deny the Bible is the absolute and uh, the absolute inspired word of God, we cannot have union with them. Those who deny the virgin birth, we cannot have union with them. Those who deny the resurrection, we cannot have union with them. Those who deny the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, we cannot have unity with them because of their sin. But all of us Orthodox Christians that are walking in disunity, that is sin. Sectarianism is sin, which is the title of this message. Now, they also title chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, as sectarianism is carnal. That's what Paul says. And so let's get right to the problem. Carnality is not just immaturity. Oh, we like to go to 1 Corinthians and we like to take this word carnal and we like to, we like to reduce it to the bare minimum possible, especially as Baptists, because we have been, what should we say, fanaticized with a truth about regeneration and we have taken it to an unbiblical extreme of thinking that everybody in the Baptist church is regenerate. And so we take this word carnal and it's like, yeah, we reduce it to the bare minimum. It's like, well, carnality, it's really like just being immature. Well, it is immature. It's not being grown up into a mature man in Christ Jesus. But... Saying that the incestuous man was just immature is really kind of whitewashing the situation. Saying that all the sexual immorality in the Corinthian church was just immaturity, that's really lowering the bar. Their carnality was greater than just an aspect of immaturity. It is fleshly. It is of the flesh, of the sinful nature, the sinful man. Certainly it means immature, which is why Paul said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as babes in Christ. Yes, immaturity. Of course, you also realize, though, Paul is calling them a bunch of babies, right? But the weight of the word goes deeper in that the reason why they are a bunch of big babies is because they are fleshly. They're not walking in the spirit. They're not walking according to that which is of God. They're walking according to their flesh. They're walking according to their own passions and their own desires. 
They are being governed by mere human nature and not by the Spirit of God. In other words, sinful. The carnality here that Paul is talking about is sin. They are sinful. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among Christians, it is because they are behaving like mere men, Paul said. Natural men. Fallen men. Sinful men. You're behaving like the world. You're acting like the world, Paul is saying. You're walking according to the flesh. And what did Paul tell the Corinthians about the works of the flesh? What are the works of the flesh? The works of the flesh... Paul says, are evident. It's as clear as the nose on your face. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Notice quickly, That those who practice such things, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is why we have inherited the kingdom of Satan. That's the reason why we haven't inherited the kingdom of God. You know what our Protestant ancestors inherited is different than what we are inheriting today. And the reason why we are inheriting what we are inheriting out there is because of the works of the flesh. Our works of the flesh. Those who commit these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here on earth or in heaven. So... We need to stop blaming God for this current state of destruction like, oh, this is all God's fault and all this stuff is coming upon us just because it's the way things are. It's the way things are meant to be. No. You see, the current state of destruction is because of you and me, ourselves. Now, Christians won't even pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, much less work for it, right? We can't even get Christians to pray for it. And there's, that's a big problem. But what we can understand from the works of the flesh is the very definition of carnality. It's fleshly behavior. It's sinfulness. It's sinful behavior. And are not these things prominent among the Corinthian church? Yes, the works of the flesh is prominent among them. All the things that Paul lists as the works of the flesh is what you find in the Corinthian church. It was the root of their problem. They were carnal. They were walking in carnality. And that is the reason why they were divided. The liberals will tell us that doctrine divides in love, their version of love, which is love, love is love, unites, which is not true. 
What is it that divides? Sin. Sin is what divides. It separates us from God and it separates us from each other. Whenever we are not walking in fellowship and unity, it's because of sin. Sin divides. Godliness unites. The flesh divides. The spirit unites. Carnality divides. Spirituality unites. Falsehood divides, but truth unites. So not only is sectarianism sinful, sectarianism is also the result of other sinful behavior. Sectarianism is actually the double whammy. It's like taking a left hook, immediately countered with the knockout punch. You see, sectarianism is sinful in and of itself, but sectarianism is also the result of sinful behavior. As we, look, as we talked about in Sunday school, it is God's judgment upon us for our sin. So sectarianism is carnality. Many a man has separated himself from the body of Christ because of lust, envy, idolatry, or some other sin, all the while professing his own righteousness because he did not wear a mask or because his eschatology is perfect. You see, when we walk in sin, we stop working for the edification of the church. That's a good barometer. Okay? When we stop working for the edification of the church, when we stop working for the good of the church and for the prosperity of the church and for the advancement of the church and for the admonition of the church, when we stop working for that, it's because we are walking in sin. That's the reason why. When we separate ourselves, it's because we're walking in sin. So when we practice self-examination, <laughs> uh, that's something good to hold on to, to remember. Because we stop working for the edification of the church when we walk in sin, and what we start doing then is seeking to tear down the church in order to exalt our own self-righteousness, which is sectarianism. It's division. Noah Webster defined sectarianism as the disposition, the character, the attitude, the essence, to dissent from the established church or prominent religion and to form new sect. Sectarian, one of a sect, one of a party in religion which has separated itself from the established church or which holds tenets different from those of the prevailing denomination in a kingdom or state. It is to divide from, to separate from. Sectarian is what they used to call the party spirit. 
Not that that exists today. We have two parties in the political realm. Oh, my word. Both of them are completely obsessed, I mean insanely obsessed with the party spirit. I mean, it doesn't matter. If you're, if, if you're a Democrat, the Democrat proposes the most insane thing, you're all in for it. If you're a Republican and some Republican proposes some insane thing, you're all in for it. It's the party spirit. In the church, this party spirit is a schism, which is simply a division of the body of Christ. John Gill, who was a Baptist pastor in the 1700s, said that sectarianism or schisms are generally made by innovations in doctrine or worship, by forming new schemes of religion, new articles of faith, and modes of discipline. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage in 1 Corinthians, he said, they quarreled about their ministers. Paul and Apollos were both faithful ministers of Jesus Christ and helpers of their faith and joy, but those who were disposed to be contentious broke into parties and set their ministers at the head of their several factions. Some cried up Paul, perhaps as the most sublime and spiritual teacher. Others cried up Apollos, perhaps as the most eloquent speaker. Some Cephas, or Peter, perhaps for the authority of his age, or because he was the apostle of the circumcision. And some were for none of them, but Christ only. So liable are the best things in the world to be corrupted in the gospel and its institutions, which are at perfect harmony with themselves and one another, to be made the engines of variance, discord, and contention. This is no reproach to our religion, but a very melancholy evidence of the corruption and depravity of human nature. Note, Henry says, how far will pride carry Christians in opposition to one another? Even so far as to set Christ and his own apostles at variance with each other and make them rivals and competitors. So today, some falsely accuse us Protestants as being sectarian, even though it was, the, it was an Antichrist who, desiring to have preeminence, sitting in the temple of God, displaying himself as God, not only would he not receive us, but cast us out. Obviously, though, what has developed in Protestantism which began as the reformation of the corrupt church. But what has developed as being, um, uh, what has developed with all the breakaway sects within it has became sectarian, even though this was not the original intent. For instance, there were men like the Baptist. We're talking about a Baptist in the very midst of the Reformation, John Toombs, who lived in the early 1600s, who pastored, by the way, an Anglican church 
before he was removed, cast out. And then he went on to pastor a Baptist church, but continued to even attend the lectures of Richard Baxter. And upon retiring from the pastorate, communed in an Anglican church until his death. In, or we might could bring up the Scottish Presbyterian James Durham, which we read from some of his book this morning, who wrote The Dying Man's Testament to the Church of Scotland, or a treatise concerning scandal. And in this book, he called our divisions within Protestantism a plague. And so he wrote this. All, especially ministers, should have a deep impression of how terrible the plague of division is. If we thought of God as angry at a church and at ministers in a time of division, it is likely that people would be in a better condition to speak concerning healing. Some time should be bestowed upon this, therefore, to let this consideration sink down in the soul so that the Lord's hand in it is recognized. The many sad consequences of division should be brought before the mind and the heart should be seriously affected and humbled with this, just as if a sword, pestilence, or fire were threatened upon us. Indeed, it is as the Lord were spitting in ministers' faces, rubbing shame on them and threatening to make them despicable, to blast the ordinances in their hands, to bring nothing the, uh, to bring to nothing their authority among the people, to remove the hedges of the visible church, to let in boars and wolves, to spoil the vines and destroy the flock, and in a word, to remove his candlestick. And so he goes on to say that failing to register this, to acknowledge this makes people more confident under their judgment rather than seeing it as a plague upon us. And such is the case. The truth of the matter is that we have deconstructed and destroyed Christendom and the church in the West. This is the Lord's judgment upon us for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We were the ones who removed the hedges of the visible church to let in boars and wolves, to spoil the vines and devour the flock. It was us. And this is what Paul is addressing. It's what he is warning the Corinthian church about. And it is the very first issue that Paul addresses among them. Notice Paul did not start with the fornication issue, the adultery issue, or the Lord's Supper issue. He begins with the disposition to schism. And I know it makes me a radical to say this, but this is the very first issue that must be addressed in our day. If we are going to make advancements toward becoming a faithful church, and I'm using the church of the word church universally, which also includes us here locally. Of course, immediately shouts of protests erupt as if what we are saying is that we are not to be concerned about doctrinal and practical uh, fidelity, which is absurd. Are you saying that Paul was unconcerned with doctrinal and practical fidelity? No, 
There is the context of orthodox faithfulness in the word unity. One cannot be separated from the other. We have the unity of the Trinity, but you can't separate truth out of the Trinity. Still yet, this is a breach that is of utmost importance for the perfecting of the saints. Perfection does not bring forth unity, and that's what schisms are all about, right? I think I'm perfect. No one else measures up to me. I'm going to do my own thing, start my own thing, so that way it'll be perfect. Perfection does not bring forth unity. A true union is the work of perfecting that which is incomplete. The work is sanctification, but there must be unity to do the work of sanctification. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that, there, that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because there is one body, one Spirit, just as we are called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then it says, a few verses later, that he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the, full, uh, to the, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So we must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a duty. It's a command that has been placed upon the church. It is the duty that we have, and that is to unify. So, Paul pleads with them. Notice what he says in verse 10. Now I plead with you. He's pleading. And he's pleading in the name of Jesus Christ that they would all speak the same thing and that there would be no divisions among them, but that they would be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And he asked this question in verse number 13. A very serious question. Notice what the question is. Is Christ divided? You know, the implications of that question is this. Then why are you so divisive? That's what he's asking the Corinthian church. Is Christ divided? Then why are you so divisive then? Because it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, Christ is not divided. You see, to proclaim 
or to display a divided Christ is carnal. It's carnality. It's where it comes from. It's because we are a carnal people. Because we are walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. Because we are walking according to the lust of our flesh and not according to the will of God. Because we are walking in sin rather than godliness. And then Paul asks this question in verse number 16. Excuse me. In chapter 3, I believe. (laughs) Yes, in chapter 3, he asks this question. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So he's saying there shouldn't be any division because you're one body. Is Christ divided? The church is the body of Christ. Therefore, you should be united. You should be dwelling together in unity. And then he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if anyone defiles the temple of God by dividing it, by being divisive, by being schismatic, by separating themselves from it, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. This is a warning not to walk in carnality. Not to walk according to the flesh. Because the flesh divides. Carnality divides. It is divisive and it tears the body of Christ apart. So Paul instructs them. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 says, For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. Right before he starts talking about the Lord's Supper, their communion. He says, first of all, when you come together, when you come together communally as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, he says, now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. 
And in the context of what Paul is telling the Corinthians, he's saying, yeah, there should be no schism in the body, but the members should have the same care for one another, whether it's a weak member or a strong member. But in America, we have decided that only those can be a part of our body who are strong according to our definition of strong. Paul is talking about the whole body. That includes the carnal ones. No schism. First and Second Corinthians thirteen eleven, Paul ends his second epistle with these words. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete, which we're saying be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. He starts 1 Corinthians chapter 1, his first letter to the Corinthians. He begins by dealing with their division. And at the end of his second epistle, he comes all the way back around to remind them not to be divisive, but to be united together with one mind and in peace. Richard Baxter wrote this, he said, He that is not a son of peace is not a son of God. All other sins destroy the church consequentially, but division and separation demolish it directly. John Calvin wrote, Those who disrupt from the body of Christ and split its unity into schisms are quite excluded from the hope of salvation so long as they remain in dissidence of this kind. Clement, who was the early church father, who lived from 35 A.D. Jesus was crucified somewhere around 33 A.D. Clement was born in 35 A.D. He died in 99 A.D. And he wrote a letter to the Corinthians sometime, you know, people argue about all this stuff, but sometime right before 70 A.D., maybe all the way up to around 96 A.D., somewhere in that time frame. And this is what he wrote to the Corinthians at this later date. He says, why is it that you harbor strife, bad temper, dissension, schism, and quarreling? Do we not have one God, one Christ, one spirit of grace which was poured out upon us? Your schism has led many astray, it has made many despair, it has made many doubt, and it has distressed us all, yet it goes on. It is disgraceful, exceedingly disgraceful, and unworthy of your Christian upbringing to have it reported that because of one or two individuals, the solid and ancient Corinthian church is in revolt against its presbyters. The result is that the Lord's name is being blasphemed because of your stupidity. And you are exposing yourselves to danger. Thomas Manton, back in the 1600s, wrote this. And think about our situation today. Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. That's how important our unity is. May God grant 
and restore the unity of the faith. 